You're listening to RIB Connect Radio. It's time for Ask the Pharmacist. A regular look behind some of the medical stories and headlines that uh, you'll have heard over recent weeks. And I'm joined now by Elizabeth Roddick from New Life Pharmacy. Hello. Hello, Simon. Are you well? Very well, thank you. I don't know why I asked that, because you're about the only person that I do ask that, and it's because I know you always are well. Well, Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep that for a later date. Right, we've got lots of stories to get through. The first one that uh, I thought we would talk about is fat's okay. That's good news. <laughs> yes, I think they suggested that you could eat as much saturated fat as you wanted. And if you remember years ago, we were told, Simon, to stop eating saturated fat. And I think what happened was people then started to use low-fat versions of food, which generally contain lots of extra sugar. And there's a question, Martin, over that now. Is that why we've got this increase in obesity? Is that why we've got increased in type 2 diabetes? Uh, And one of the problems is that the report has cherry-picked some of the research showing that saturated fats are safe. But I think most experts believe that it is, is a balance in your diet. I mean, I believe that you should have saturated fats as part of, of your diet, but it's within that balance. Lots of other things as well, proteins, you have to have some carbohydrates as well. But I think what happened was there was a complete switch away from saturated fats. But to say that you can eat as much as you as you want of saturated fats, I think is the wrong message. I think you need saturated fats, but within a balanced diet. And the trouble with stories like this is people cling on to bits that they want to, don't they? Yeah, I think it's, you know, what what do you eat now? I think it's really, really confusing for, for the public. And these are supposed to be so-called experts. But I think one of the questions is, who are the people who are, who are suggesting this? Because the government and, you know, medical people are coming back saying this is the wrong message. So I think you've just got to look at balancing things and and don't keep saturated fats out of your diet. I think they should be in, but don't eat too too many. I think apples are still good, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Still get away with an apple. (laughs) There you go, you can relax. (laughs) Right, we'll move on now. Um, Superbugs will kill someone every three seconds by 2050 unless the world acts now. Now, whether the world... uh, We hear that the word resistance quite a lot. Is this what it's about, actually? You're quite right, Simon. It's what happens in the bacteria that the bug's genetic code mutates or changes. They're more likely to avoid being killed off. And and as they replicate, this new genetic code means that the resistance to antibiotics is is passed on to the next generation of the bugs. And and they'll become the so-called superbugs. And that's where the present antibiotics just won't work. Now, this was a a review by the UK government, wasn't it? Yes, they came out with several recommendations. I'll mention a few of them, Simon. They suggested that between 40 to $100 million should be used per year to publicise the campaign on a world stage. And that may seem a lot of money, but if you check the manufacturers of some food and drink, you'd be surprised at how much they spend on advertising. And one of the newer recommendations is that antibiotics should be limited for animals, and I think that's a good one. It's estimated 70% of antibiotics are used in animals, so let's get that out of the food chain. There needs to be much more sharing of information between 
different countries what antibiotics are being used, what, what resistance is present in these different countries. Now, we know that antibiotics are used often without checking what bacteria is present. So there's a call for lots of new tests so that when a practitioner is using an antibiotic and it's being prescribed, then they know it's the right one and it will actually you know, do its stuff and it will actually kill the bacteria. So pharmaceutical companies, they're going to be suggested or, or encouraged to look at developing new antibiotics because at the moment they don't feel there's money in it. And so there's going to be a global innovation fund to get these companies to look at all of that. And I suppose when it gets right down to you and I, Simon, it's just don't expect an antibiotic if you have a cold or chesty cough when you go along to the uh, doctor. Leave the antibiotics for people that really need it the critically ill, the hospital, those undergoing operations where antibiotics are needed. Otherwise, lots of operations, for example, will not go ahead in the future. It's a frightening prospect if we don't even, you and I, do our bit as well. Yeah, and uh, if you do have antibiotics as well, finish the course. Yes, that's the other thing. If mm. you don't finish the course, again, you can build up resistance. All right, Elizabeth, thank you for that. Now... New new story here. People should consider taking aspirin immediately after a mini stroke. Now, first of all, what's happening when uh, a mini stroke takes place? Yes, I mean it's it's called a TIA or transient ischemic attack, and it's a clot of blood in the brain that temporarily stops the flow of blood. So the researchers in in this particular study, they. They were from several universities, and they looked at different trials showing the effect of aspirin, and it was over time. So in some of the trials, it, the treatment didn't start right away. It was 40 hours after a stroke. And then they were looking at repeated strokes up between six weeks, 12 weeks and over 12 weeks and, and looking to see what difference the aspirin would make. There was also another drug used in the trial. It was called dipyridamol, which uh, we know and certainly in the pharmacy world. So the results were encouraging that the risk of repeating a stroke within six weeks of a TIA was cut by 60% by taking aspirin. And under 1%, those who took the aspirin had a repeated stroke within the six weeks. And that compared with 2.3% of people who didn't take an aspirin. Now, the di this difference carried on until after 12 weeks, and then there was no difference in the risk of, of having a stroke, whether they had taken aspirin or not. So that was after 12 weeks. In other words, it's the first few weeks that aspirin has a big biggest positive effect. And dipyridamol, interestingly, worked better after 12 weeks, and that was an interesting one. Now, before everyone takes or gives someone uh, an aspirin if they're having a stroke, I'd like to air a word of caution. There's a type of stroke, and it's called a hemorrhagic stroke, and that's where the brain is bleeding, and, and the aspirin would actually make it worse. And So a brain scan is the only way you can tell what sort of stroke the person is having. So for the moment, we don't have... What we're suggesting is we don't have the go-ahead to give aspirin. Uh, and I think we're waiting to hear what our medical um, colleagues are going to say. So I think the, the thing to do is to get medical help right away. Get that brain scan and then you know whether aspirin can be given safely. And if you think that you may have had a mini stroke, if there's perhaps some drooping in your face or perhaps some symptom of one side of the body or whatever, don't just take some aspirin and think, right, well, that, that's fine. Go and see a doctor about that. Yes, get medical help immediately, Simon. Yeah. All right, now, 
Moving on to, this is slightly different, Elizabeth, this one, I'm looking forward to this one. Going to church could save your life. Women who worship once a week are 25% less likely to die early. <laughs> so I take it they're not going to go speeding to church. <laughs> yeah, Simon, I'm not sure. It is an American study, mind <laughs> you. They maybe drive faster than we do. It's researchers for Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Now, the study looked at female nurses, and it was from 1996 to 2012, and they linked deaths to the attendance at church. And they looked at 74,000 people and they were questioned, how often do you go to religious meetings or services? And it was more than once a week, every week, maybe one to three times a month, less than once a month or, or never. Now, of course, they had to take into account something called confounders. And these are other factors that will obviously skew the research. Obvious examples are the age of of the nurse, uh, lifestyle, did they drink alcohol, smoke? What about weight, exercise, income? And funnily enough, they asked, uh, what was the husband's education? And that seemed to have a a bearing on it as well. And and also, did they live with any degree of depression? Because that made a difference. The women were almost exclusively white and were either Roman Catholic or other Christian denominations. And they found that those who attended church regularly had lower rates of death from heart disease and cancer. Now, the main factors for longevity were were social support, uh, something lowering rates, increasing optimism in the attenders. Uh, One of the arguments for suggesting it's not just about attending religious gatherings, it could be any community group where they're supported, they have social interaction. I mean, there was another study, for example, that that looked at the history of cancer and they looked at people who had improved immune function just by being part of a choir. So it doesn't have to be going to church or the religious, but it just happened to be this particular research was on going to church. Yeah, which I presume, like many other things, involves looking forward, doesn't it? Having goals and looking forward to something as well, which could be very important. I think the support side is just absolutely really important because we know that loneliness um, has has a bearing on reduced uh, longevity. And so I think getting a support in whatever group is really important. Final story I'd like to look at, Elizabeth, because we've started we've started down this path now. Um, revealed the five hidden killers that can send you to an early grave. Right, okay, so what we're looking for, as I was saying earlier on, we're not talking bullets or buses here, are we? <laughs> we're not. It was a bit simplistic, I think, to say that something like poor sleep or loneliness could have an effect on how long you lived. But what they were doing was classifying health and well-being in a different way. Again, it was an American study, and they started off by giving a definition to health, and I think this is quite important. It's called it's it's a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just the absence of disease. Because when we talk amongst our friends, it's always well, what's wrong with you? But in actual fact, it's that feeling of of really well-being, and I find that people, um, you know, do talk about what's wrong with them when they get together, and and it's really Although they maybe don't have a physical problem, it's definitely an an optimistic view of health and how you feel. And so there was 3,000 people in this trial and they were aged between 57 and 87. And the researchers um, noted that it was those who were suffering from diseases such as cancer, heart disease, thyroid, 
obviously they had to take that into account because that's that sort of age group 57 to 85 will obviously be suffering from something they also looked at smoking exercise they looked at vision interestingly enough hearing psychological health depression and any one of the measures were was interesting that one of the measures that they did check was have you had any broken bones and so what they did was they divided them into six classes, obese but in good health. Um, maybe they had one thing wrong, like a thyroid problem, or maybe they had broken bones, osteoporosis. Again, poor memory and loneliness was one of the factors. Diabetes, the usual high blood pressure, and also if they were very frail and had mental illness. The good news is that the, those who were a little overweight but had no other diseases, had the lowest risk of dying. That was interesting, just 6%. The second group just had one thing wrong, 16%. Those with broken bones, mental health, illness, 28%. The most vulnerable diseases, and 44%. So it's normal things like cancer and high blood pressure. Now, apart from measuring vision at the start, it wasn't mentioned later on, but I think it, if, if vision, for example, leads to loneliness or, in fact, you're falling, you maybe um, ended up with broken bones, then that can obviously increase the risk of dying. So the message is to try and look after yourself and, and try and become part of, just like the other research, part of a social group. And I think that will help with longevity. Okay, Elizabeth, thank you very much for that. If you have got any questions or any comments on anything we've covered today or you have a question for Elizabeth, uh, you can contact me here at RNIB Connect Radio or you can contact Elizabeth directly via her website, which is allthews.newlifepharmacy.co.uk. Elizabeth, always a pleasure to see you. We will catch up with you really soon. Thanks, Simon.